Hello, and welcome to the Tower Coffee Hour. This is your host, Ty Tyree. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Ani Colt. And we're going to be talking about Ballot Miller today. And the part of Ballot Miller we're going to talk about today is City Council and the Mayor's Race. It's got a lot of people in the Mayor's Race. It's going to be interesting come November, believe me. So let's see who we're talking to today. And so we've got Kirk Watson. Website is kirkwatson.com, and it's got a lot of good information. We'll look at that a little bit later. But uh, let's see if the mayor's online. Here we go. There he hey. is. Hey, Kirk. Good to be with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I got to thinking about how we met originally, and I think the first time I spent any time with you it was back in the – 1999, in that era, we had a, a national bicycle education conference here in Austin, and you came in and talked to us. You did one of our keynotes for us, and you were here when the airport shut down. You were mayor when the airport shut down and created Miller. And so this whole thing is aimed at the population of Miller because we vote, and we're getting to be a significant population, sure. and we want them to know who they're voting for. So this is your chance to talk to the residents of Miller and say why you should be the next mayor of Austin. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and you're right. Uh, I was mayor from 1997 to 2001. And it was during that period of time that we passed the master plan for what is now the Miller neighborhood. We closed that airport and opened what is uh, now known as Austin Bergstrom International Airport. Um, you probably remember, uh, some folks will remember, that when we the decision had been made uh, to close the airport, uh, to close Miller Airport, uh, one of the, the, the big plan was that the state of Texas was going to take about half of it. And uh, what would happen is the, the funding that the state would pro provide the city would allow the city to provide the infrastructure for what was going to be essentially a second state complex. And, uh, about, you know, it's about 700 and roughly 740, 750 acres as my memory. So about half of it would go to the state and half would stay with the city and it would be developed in a master plan. Um, and in the 99 session, when, when uh, you're talking about we first met, in the 99 legislative session, the legislature backed out of the deal. And so the city was left with going back to the drawing board because a whole lot of planning had been, uh, had occurred in that, in a period of time there. But the legislature, um, being the legislature, they, they made a different decision. And so we went back to the drawing board and that's when we created the, the tax increment financing district to help pay for the infrastructure, did the master planning and um, passed a master plan and began the process uh, that has led to what is a, a really tremendous neighborhood. And, and mod we always thought it would probably, if we did it right, it would be a model for the rest of the nation about how you reclaim a big chunk of property and turn it into a thriving neighborhood. Uh, I love that the, the fact that this is called the tower because, as you will remember, uh, in the original master plan, the tower wasn't going to be preserved. But what occurred is, as we got a little further down the road 
And frankly, my memory is that we had already adopted the master plan that uh, a decision was made that, you know, that tower needs to stay there as kind of an iconic remembrance uh, and, and uh, of, of that wonderful, you know, the, the airport, what it meant to our city, and now become a symbol, uh, as you are using it, of, of, of great neighborhood. So I served from Mary, that's, you know, to talk about your neighborhood, uh, 97 to 2001. Uh, I left office to become the uh, Democratic nominee for Attorney General of the state of Texas. Uh, that did not turn out the way I had hoped. Uh, I came, I was already in Austin, but I went back to working in the community the way I had always done, practicing law in addition to that. Then I, um, uh, in 2006, I ran for uh, the Texas Senate and was elected. Uh, then I served in the Texas Senate for um, 13 and a half years and, and was proud to be uh, one of the leaders in the Senate. Uh, I was actually chair of the De- Senate Democratic Caucus for a period of time. Uh, worked on a variety of issues, including uh, many people will remember um, uh, my work with Wendy Davis when when she was filibustering uh, that horrific uh, abortion bill and the role that I played in that it, uh, on that night. I'm pre- pleased to be endorsed by her in this campaign. Um, in in 2019, I decided that. Um, I would look at, I was offered and, and recruited to become the founding dean of the University of Houston Hobby School of Public Affairs. And I thought, you know, that's not, I wasn't looking for something like that, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of dedicated my life to public service. And I thought, well, that, and I love helping young people. In fact, I had the Kirk Watson Campaign Academy for years and years here. So I did that. But of course, I announced that in February of 2020. And of course, we know what happened in March of 2020, and uh, that is they closed the campus because we were all shut down, right? So I ended up doing that job sitting right where I'm sitting right now uh, in the uh, the, the converted uh, bedroom uh, that is my home office, uh, you know, wearing short pants and no shoes and socks because I, we were doing it all on Zoom. I said, I'll give it a year. We'll see how it works out. Uh, yeah, that's why I, I, I figured you were. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, there you go. Um, and, and so uh, I did that a little over a year. We got a lot done. They needed they needed me to come in and, and do those things. But at the end of that year, I said, you know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to stay in Austin. We, we had an apartment, but I, we never essentially never down there. Uh, so uh, and, and we had had. We, we hunkered down with my grand, my grandchild. Uh, she was about two and a half then, and our daughter-in-law was pregnant with another little granddaughter. And so I, I said, you know, I know they, they kept saying, stay with us, stay with us, it'll open up. And my response was, yeah, I love what I'm doing, but the truth of the matter is that uh, I'm a different guy than I was 16 months ago when we started this conversation. And mostly it was because of those two little girls, uh, one that was already here and one on the way, and I'm, I'm glad I made that decision. A lot of people said, why don't you run for mayor again? And, of course, I love being mayor. It was It's the best public service job I've ever had uh, because you can you can get some dirt under your fingernails. You can actually get things done that is a direct impact on people. My public service hadn't ended. It just was cut short because of COVID. A lot, with, like, a lot of people had things cut short. And so Liz and I spent a lot of time talking about it, and we concluded – 
yeah, this is something. Uh, I'm not done with public service. Austin is at a critical juncture and uh, has a lot. There's a lot left to be done. So uh, here I am. I, I, I love this place. Uh, have since we got here in 1981, I fell in love immediately, and uh, that love hasn't dissipated. I, I love that. And so I've been in Austin 10 years. Mm. I never lived in a major city, but I lived in the suburbs of Chicago, New York, Boston. Wow. You know, so it's been a whole new thing to learn what living in a city and city politics and so forth is about. So I think if you could, thinking of all the people who have moved to Austin and are continually moving to Austin, what would you say to them? Well, um, you know, what's great, I love that question because I, there's two things that immediately pop in my mind when you say that. One is that what you just described, I think, is really a big part of the story of Austin. You know, I started this by saying how I fell in love almost immediately. You've been here 10 years. You obviously are in love with, with the place. And you refer to so many people that are moving here. In, in a day and age with, with, uh, with, you know, electronics and technology where people can live, and, and COVID, by the way, the pandemic really proved this, people can live pretty much anywhere they want to live and be able to access the things they need for uh, work and, and that sort of thing. They're attracted to a place like Austin, Texas, because Austin, Texas, in my view, has always been this place that is open to new people, new thoughts, new ideas, creativity. People that want to find themselves can find themselves in Austin, Texas. People that, that have been in other places and things didn't work out, they can come here and, and, and play a major role. I've always thought the term keep Austin weird. Um, I used to tell people that, 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 that was a typo. It was supposed to be keep Austin wired, but you know, Austin just went with it. But, uh, but the, the weirdness that I've, I've always celebrated that because, and, and here's why many times the first time we hear an idea or a thought or see something very creative, a lot of people think, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, but, but in Austin, no matter who you are, we're, we're embracing you and, and go ahead with that, that first thought and turn it into whatever it ought to be. Or, or you may feel like you're weird and trying to find yourself. But I love the fact that even in a state of Texas where they say we're the blueberry and the tomato soup, we're a place where you can be yourself. You can hold your views and, 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 um, and, and find yourself. Now, having said all that, the second thought that I have is directly responsive to your question. And that is what I would say to people is participate with us. Help us keep Austin the place that attracted you because you could be who you are and be yourself. And help us make sure that it's equitable in the way we do this, that no one is left behind as we, as we grow and as we face the challenges. Uh, the truth is that most of, I mean, I'm very optimistic about Austin 20 years from now, 
And the reason is that most of our greatest challenges uh, are, are not because we're having to manage decay. It's instead that we're very successful. Uh, everything from affordability to traffic, those are results of a successful city. And, and while I know that there are things that, that aren't a direct result or even an indirect result of great success, those challenges we get to address from a platform of success and, and, a, and a lot of prosperity. So if you're coming new to Austin, if you've been here as long as I've been here, as long as you've been here, or just been here a few weeks, you love the place. Now let's make sure we protect it so that 20 years from now, others will be able to love this place. So, Kirk, I want to ask you a two-part question. Good. First part, you were mayor. You've had your chance. I want one thing out of that that you're the proudest of. And the second part of that question is, you're running again. What's the big challenge? Great. Um, so I, I, could, I could give you a whole lot of things I'm proud of, but you've asked for one. And, and here's the, the one I'll, I'll bring up. You, prob you probably remember that when I uh, first was running for mayor and first elected mayor, that Austin had what I would call a, a de facto two-party system at the time. And it was environment versus development. It was SOS, Save Our Springs Alliance, versus the you know real estate council. It was the Chamber of Commerce versus uh, the Sierra Club, however you want to divide that up. And it was it was preventing us from making decisions that would benefit the entire community because we were so divided. And what I said I would do when I come in uh, is that I would bring our city together so that we could move things forward. And um, we did that, uh, including things like uh, something, you know, we talk about the beauty of Austin. Uh, you'll recall that within a year of my being mayor, we uh, passed a bond election that allowed for us to begin the purchase of important land over the aquifer so that we can maintain those green, beautiful hills with, uh, you know, with wilderness and protect our water supply. Uh, so, but we would not have been able to do that had we stayed divided. Our downtown was a, a dead downtown after five o'clock. Uh, my memory is there may have been more, but my memory is there were only three places you could live in downtown and people wanted more housing and more retail in the downtown. But we were so divided, we weren't able to achieve those. But by bringing people together, we ushered in a time where now our downtown is considered uh, nationally and internationally as one of the great downtowns. And things that happened that were a part of that, uh, you may recall that the land where City Hall sits was actually purchased by the city of Austin in the mid-1970s to build a new city hall. And we met in what we called the temporary council chambers. Well, when I was elected in 97, we were still meeting in the temporary council chambers. But we had, not, we had been divided and not been able to, to come together to get that done. When I was mayor, we were able to do that. And I, and I could go on and on. But the answer is, what am I proudest of? I think it is that I was able and have continued to show that I'm able to build consensus 
behind big ideas and then get it done. And that's one of the things. So that leads to your second question. We need to get some things done. Yeah, we do. The number one thing is we need to make sure, just like I said before, that our city government is working the way it ought to work. And, you know, we're a focal point worldwide, people think of Austin. City government ought to be one of the shining stars of that. Uh, We ought to be moving, city government ought to be moving at a pace that the rest of our town is moving at, um, or at least not moving so slowly that it hinders the ability uh, to get things done. But part of that is that we're making decisions that are winner-take-all decisions. They are all or nothing, zero-sum games. And we're not looking at how we can lead, in this case, so that we, again, build consensus and get things done with a sense of urgency. Things like, how do we address cost of living and affordability? How do we address the perennial problem of transportation and traffic? Those sorts of things are going to require consensus, and we've got to get past this all-or-nothing, winner-take-all approach to things. Ani has worked, and we have created a nonprofit that's called WOW, W-A-A-O. That stands for We Are All One, and the vision is exactly what you said, is we will all work together to make it better for all of us, for each one of us. Yes. Uh, and our charter is to foster community, which gives us a lot of latitude. Um, yeah, I love that, though. The, uh, the, the, the real question that you got, you stuck your foot into, uh, is land use code and planning. And I, I loved your original statement, your vision of let's try something different. <clears throat> you got a lot of pushback. And I think when you answered that pushback, it was the right answer. Can you give it to us? You, you propose land use code by district, sort of, and then you they got you got a lot of pushback and said, "Now that's parochial. That's going to create you know Chicago." Uh, but your response, you came out, I think, was brilliant. And I'm, I'm not trying to softball to you. You know, I like you, but we're not endorsing anybody at this I'm point. That. Yeah, and uh, but. So what's the answer to we can't do land use code by district? So so let me back up uh, to the previous question you asked it, because I think that that is you you did that well in, in terms of setting up a platform for that. So for about the past decade, you know, maybe a little less, we have faced uh, trying to redo the land development code. We faced trying to redo that in an all or nothing fashion. Right. Uh, one of the last acts of the at-large councils, and people should remember that, that uh, you know, just less than a decade ago, we had a council that was a mayor and six council members all elected at-large in our city. That changed to a mayor representing the entire city and 10 council members rep- representing single-member districts. One of the last acts was to pass a major comprehensive code change, last acts of that large council, major comprehensive code change. And then our form of government changed to single-member districts. And at that time, 
we all, those of us that supported single member districts, and I was one of the people that for decades have been supporting single member districts because I, be, I wanted greater diversity uh, racially and ethnically. I wanted greater diversity of thought because you live in a big town. We're all living very close to each other. Having diverse thought helps, I believe, get us to better ideas ultimately. Um, and it was so that neighborhoods and communities of interest could vote those interests as, as, as part of the single member districts. But almost immediately, we took that at-large code change and we put it on top of a single-member district system and said, we want this at-large change all or nothing. Well, first of all, you've heard me speak. We can't do things all or nothing. Uh, That's going to, and I think that's part of what had killed that over time. And we know it was a comprehensive change because that was the defense that was given in the lawsuit when the city of Austin told citizens, we don't have to give you notice and we're going to try to get around the valid petition system that many people don't know what that is. But if a certain number of people sign a petition uh, within a certain distance of a proposed zoning change, then you have to get a super majority of the council in order to pass it. And they were trying to get around that. And in the court case, when they were sued, all the way through the court case, their defense was that we can get around that because this is a comprehensive system. Well, the court said you can't do that. So now we've got a situation where if you if you wanted a land development code change, and by the way, I said all or nothing, and we got nothing. Right. Because once it was over, it got nothing. So what my thought process was is how do we honor our form of government? We've now gone to single member districts. Is there a way that you can say and can you say in District X, did you think Code Next was good for your district? And the district member says, yes, I, I voted for it. I was ready to vote for it. Say, OK, if we can get around. The, the valid petition because we allow you to bring that forward to the council and the council votes for it and there's not the, the valid petition veto, would you do it? And if they say yes, my, my thought was, let's try to bring that forward and get that into place so that that district, we, we honor the way single member districts work and that district will be in a position to... Um, to make those changes. It might be different in different districts. And the protection, of course, is always, uh, some people that, that, that you mentioned, uh, some people were pushed back on it, but, but they were pushing back on it by suggesting that the council wouldn't be involved in some way, which you can't do legally. I mean, I, I find it interesting, uh, but, but that they even brought that up that way. Uh, some said, well, a council will veto, a council member will veto anything that happens in their district. Well, they didn't read the rest of the plan. You know, everything that the council is current, con- currently considering with code changes citywide would still apply. Uh, I pointed out that I think transit corridors ought to be foundations for obviously transit, but they also ought to be foundations for housing. 
And I think the, the public voted for that. And I, you know, in some instances, I think you ought to have minimums uh, on what you can build so that we have the, the appropriate density instead of maximums in, in saying this is the most you can build, say this is the minimum you can build. I talked about how we could get better uh, dwelling, uh, accessory dwelling units, uh, how we might get more duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. Again, that would apply citywide, and there wouldn't be the ability, as, the, as some suggested, to veto that. I mean, in fact, I'm not even sure I had a word in there that started with the letter V. Um, but, but what's happened is we've, tra- we've gotten trained on this, that it has to be my way or no way, all or nothing. And what I hope is that, that we can lay out ideas. And by the way, I know that my ideas are rarely, I'm not going to take credit. Uh, I'm not going to say they're never perfect, <laughs> but they're rarely perfect. And I want us to have a conversation about how do we get around, how do we stop this all or nothing approach so that we get the housing we need because we can't afford to have nothing. And and bring good ideas to improve, because by doing that, uh, these ideas can have a thousand mothers, and they're the stickiest kind when you do it that way. I want to ask you a question about my constituency, which is the older residents in Boston. And when I came here, Mayor Leffingwell had just done the whole work on investigating what we can do for seniors. And there's there's now a commission on seniors and yeah. other things done. In our particular neighborhood, we have two 55-plus uh, apartment buildings, each with about 200 units. One of them is 85% affordable. That affordability is attached to the MFI. The MFI has been just going up skyrocketing, particularly in our district. And so people are being priced out of being able to stay there. Some of them have been there for eight, ten years, and they have to move. Now, when you're setting up to live independently, and you hope you can make it independently, having the community of living in the same building all these years really makes a difference. They've been, even though I don't live there anymore, I did live there my first five years, they contact me and say, Ani, Ani, what can we do? Right. And we have been reaching out to the Commission on Seniors and others, but I'd like to hear you address that. Yeah, well, it, it, it's it's a subset, isn't it? Of It's a subset of our bigger problem or our bigger challenge. And that is that we're, we're going to, we're going to need to have more housing and we're going to need to do it in a way that, that has a focus on, in some instances, very specific focuses. Uh, I, I actually think that kind of the structural system that gets built into how people get credit and we have communities uh, that, that have difficulty getting credit. And so they, they have problems. We're going to need to, to pay attention to that. Um, as, as along the lines of what you're talking about with regard to seniors whose income, when you see the MFI going up and, and you see the different things that qualify you, seniors tend to be, I mean, if they get a bump, it's a, it's a very, it's a small bump, right? Over, over time. Um, so, so I think that what we have to do as part of this 
uh, is when we're talking about affordability, when we're talking about uh, both rental and ownership and things of that nature, we're going to have to include that portion of our population because we are, I mean, you, you didn't say it this way, but I, but you imply it and I'll say it. Our population is aging very rapidly, even, even as we're a, a relatively young town, our population is aging and it go back to what I said about moving rapidly. This is in my mind, one of the urgencies that needs to be addressed and we don't have time to spend like we've just spent five, six, eight years fighting a court case when we're not addressing those specific needs. It has to be at the forefront of mind. And we agree on that. And so what would you do, Kirk Watson, if you if you are anointed mayor? <laughs> well, the, it don't feel like no anointment. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I've been at this a while. Um, well, I, I, number one is you, so number one is you have to get more housing on the ground. And in many instances, that housing's not going to be the traditional housing that we think of, right? It's not, it, we, we, we think typically of, uh, single family homes, I, th- I say we, I think that's been the way people have thought for, for decades and generations. But as people age and they want to age in place, just like a lot of young people, we're going to need to think about housing differently than just that single family. But we're also going to have to take into account that seniors will have special needs with regard to what that housing provides. Um, And and because aging, uh, as we all know, uh, does something, makes us move slower and has us doing some things that we can't, could, or not able to do some things that we were able to do before. So that goes back to what I was saying. As we develop more housing, we have to be developing it in a specific way knowing that it becomes available to address specific needs. So, for example, um, I could I could envision where along the transit lines, you incentivize at, at, at hubs, and, and by the hubs, I'm talking probably transit stops, you incentivize the ability to build housing rental and otherwise, that would be accessible to seniors and it would be accessible to public transportation so that there's less need to be driving and doing all the things that as people age, uh, they try to figure out ways to to uh, do differently. And you, and, and you just create the incentive program and you create, create the planning program to say that's what we're going to do. Well, I didn't know if I was going to bring this up, but I'm going to bring up Wonderman Central. (laughs) Well, we call it Wonderman Central. Okay. Miller has eight acres that have not been spoken for. And a group of us started dreaming what that could be. Our plan that we're reinitiating that kind of went quiet with the COVID is to build on that eight acres 
um, a plan that really addresses the needs. The eight acres happen to be in a transit district because it's at 51st and Berkman, both which have one yep. have a rapid line pretty soon. We're seeing um, micro units. We're seeing co-housing in a um, in a tall building, a four-story building. In other words, places where seniors or those who can't afford to live independently or need help can live together. So really designing in a new way. Yes. And also designing with the understanding that COVID has changed how we live. And yes. we see um, we're actually envisioning a assisted living place because people who live around here have to move from the neighborhood to when they can't live independently. And then a new kind of community center that I have been dreaming of for decades here. And of course the dream changes as we change, but this is a community building place and it would have a coffee shop, but not a Starbucks coffee shop. I happened to work at Starbucks once in, in the coffee business when I was a new product consultant. And this model wasn't on the decks for Miller. And for us to get it through the system is, is quite a challenge. And mm. I, I, I'll send you some, we'll send you Please some information. Because, because here's, here's what you've just done that corresponds with the way in my, the way I'm looking at this in my plan. If you look at my plan, uh, there's two parts that may correspond with what you just said. The first clearly does. And that is that I think we ought to do an inventory in our community of, uh, you know, green space. I don't mean part, but actually I have one idea for what's currently designated a part, but not really a part, but, but green, green field, but also land that is underutilized in my view, because it's, it's got, you know, uh, used car lots on it. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the example I think of is if you're driving airport boulevard, north toward the highway. The county has all the new buildings over here on your right, but over on this side is basically just slabs of asphalt. Uh, I also, by the way, uh, in the mall there, uh, I guess it's Hancock, um, there's a, an empty uh, Sears building. Uh, and then, of course, you bring up another piece of property. I think one of the things that needs to happen is a very determined effort to identify and then create incentives for how we develop that. Uh, now, some people will say, oh, you can't, can't take a Sears, but, uh, but why not? I mean, why, why could you not take a Sears and turn that into not only a, a, a lot of housing, but also things like some of the retail you're talking about, and maybe even for that matter, particularly if you're focusing on seniors, uh, a health clinic so that you have access to health care almost immediately. So, so first of all, you, that corresponds with part of what I've been talking in my plan. The second part of my plan that that corresponds with is that I want to create a um, housing partnership among the governmental jurisdictions, bring them together, City of Austin, County, AISD, ACC, and, and look at our land 
and how you can use that land to benefit uh, by by and being able to keep costs low because it's uh, government owned land. You can you can do a number a variety of things with leases and things of that nature, covenants and things of that nature, so that you specifically could target the way you're talking about and put it near lines, put it, you know, my, my vision would be, you know, school teachers and uh, school staff could have, you might target that as a group, um, but but seniors would play a role. It, it, it has to, or we're not preparing for the, for the, the future. Back in my early days of working, I lived in a whole community that was in a land trust. So when you bought yeah. a house, you got a 99-year lease. You didn't own the land. You didn't, so the value of the land was not involved in the house sale and everything else. So guess what the, value, the cost of the house was? It was much lower because yeah. the entire community was in a land trust. And so there are lots of options. And, you know, with your legal background, I'm sure that you've got lots of great ideas about where we could go with all of this. Well, I certainly have a lot of ideas. <laughs> let's, let's hope they're correct. <laughs> but, but, you know, along those lines, one of the things that I, I, I want the community to consider is that uh, out at Lake Walter Long, you have, a, you know, that, that was built year, decades ago for, to, to have, to, and that pond was built to cool elect, for electric generation. Well, the pond's about 1,600 acres, give or take. And there's about 2,500 acres of land that has some use, but very, very, very limited use right now. When, when you say, but, it, but it's been designated parkland. And so when you say park, people think of parks, but it, it, it's not really that. And a master plan was done that uh, in 2018 or 2019, the master plan was done for that as a park. And the estimate then, was it would cost eight hundred million dollars? So you know it's 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 over a billion now. And what we also know from a pragmatic perspective is that ain't likely to happen, right? And I'm not even sure it's the right time for that kind of thing when we're talking about the things we're talking about. So what I've suggested is, and by the way, the Green Line, which is already owned by Capital Metro, runs right up there to that and, and beyond, but it, it's, it's right there at that uh, big chunk of land. Also, the Expo Center is there. So what I've suggested is let's take, pick a number, 800 acres and say we're going to keep that as parkland. Um, that would by itself create what is arguably the largest park in Austin and Travis County, but I'll, I'll, I'll say maybe the second, if you count the Barton uh, Creek wilderness area and, and that park, but 800 acres would make an enormous park and you wouldn't have to put it in just one place. You could put it around, but then master plan it like, wait for it, Miller, <laughs> like what we did at Miller, where you could also, perhaps, I'm not suggesting you have to do this, create it as a land trust or something like what you just suggested so that you make it affordable in perpetuity. You make it very dense. 
you put it on a rail, a transit line so that you'll be 10 minutes from downtown um, and, and use our assets in a, in a better way. Um, and, and, and actually, by the way, if you tiffed it the way we did Miller, you'd be able to probably pay for your infrastructure and importantly, pay for your park where we don't currently have the ability to pay for that park. Yeah, that's the thing about Miller. You know, we went in with the retail center first, the regional retail center, and that started generating uh, tax revenues that helped us. So we ended up paying for all the infrastructure at Miller out of the that's tax right. revenues that were coming out of the buildings we put in first. And so, yes. yeah, we're 711 acres. You know what? 140 acres at 711 is green space. Yes. It's that's the kind of ratio you're talking about. 2,500 acres cut out 800. That's green space. You've created, you know, a couple of millers out there in the vision in the world. And I think Miller have been pretty successful. There are a lot of people, you know, complain about some stuff, but we've been pretty doggone successful and we are working to continue to make it better. And, and here's the beauty of, of, of what you just said. We can, we've, we can learn from stuff, right? If, if things didn't really work, we can do this again. And like you, you, you're right to point out, we're talking about double Miller if we do that. And we're talking about the Genesis in the same way. And here's what I mean. We were getting ready to have 700 plus acres of Old, gone airport that would have been a waste to the taxpayers of the city of Austin had we not done something with it. But it's turned into a real asset of the community. I don't think this land, this land out at Lake Long has been uh, basically fallow for decades. I don't think it's in the best interest of the taxpayers. I want to keep your taxes as low as I can. In fact, that's one of the things in my cost of living plan that I specifically reference. Well, part of that means then using our our, our, our relatively fallow or fallow land in a way that gets you a better return, you and the other citizens, like what I'm talking about at Lake Long, and back to the, the original what kind of started this looking at in, in places that are commercial right now that aren't getting us the highest housing and they're not getting us the highest return so that the new tax revenue you get off new development, which doesn't fall under the state cap on property taxes that rolls into the way we pay for services and keeps otherwise your property taxes at a lower rate. Oh, that that's a great place to end. Your property tax at a lower rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hang on to that thought. Yeah. Uh, hang on to that thought. And I know we we are pushing your time limit. You've got something else to do. So uh, we're going to go back. We'll close it down. And then I'll come back and talk to you offline just for a second. Great. I've enjoyed this. Thank you all very much. And thanks to the citizens in Miller. Okay, Ani. So that's Kirk Watson. And he is... Uh, Something else, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to be really enthusiastic about someone who really knows his stuff. That yeah. Well, thank you. Does. So let's close it down, and uh, we'll see you the next time we have somebody to interview. 
and look forward to working with all of our candidates.